This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode, inheritance tax, should it be scrapped? <laughs> is a £7.6 billion tax cut for millionaires the way to really turn things around for Rishi Sunak? Some Tory MP seems to think so. What taxes would you cut instead? That's coming up in our big thing in just a moment. But first, let's take a look at the news with The Columnists. The Columnists with Libby Rachie. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. Oh, here we are again then on a Monday. Hello to Libby Purvis. Hello, Libby. Hello. And in the studio with me, Rachel Sylvester. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Matt. Now, let's talk about Mickey Mouse degrees, which is sort of what is what this whole story is all about without quite using the phrase. Uh, yeah, they've the, banned that phrase, apparently. They've banned the phrase while also seeking political capital from... Exactly. Now, can you explain what it is that they've actually announced, Rachel? So they are saying that degrees should have value. So degrees that the government decide are low value to to the undergraduates are going to be capped. So they're going to have a cap on the number of students who can do those degrees. Um, There are lots and lots of problems with this policy, in my opinion. Um, First of all, the Office for Students, which is the kind of regulator for universities, already can fine uh, universities if the degrees aren't meeting the value according to these government criteria. Um, Secondly, how do you decide value? So are you saying that a banker is inherently more valuable than a nurse because they earn more? A lot of this uh, measure of value seems to be to do with the type of job that people go on to and graduate earnings. Uh, And the the other problem is as soon as you start capping courses, capping the number of people who can go on to certain courses, it inevitably affects the most disadvantaged more because they're less likely to go to university. So they're the ones who first get squeezed out. Uh, So it feels to me like it's a slightly gimmicky policy. The the Tory right wing are always going on about Mickey Mouse degrees. Um, But actually, it's a rather unconservative policy because, you know, if you have a sort of market, students are going to vote with their feet and they won't go to the degrees that aren't um, useful to them so long as they have the information, which they do. So, interestingly, just while we've been speaking, um, some uh, the Press Association is reporting that Richie Sunak, who's visiting a school this morning, was asked... Does the Office for National Statistics, has it been ordered by the government to cap the numbers for certain courses? Office for students, you mean? Office for students. Yeah. And he said, no, 
The regulator is independent and rightly slow. What the regulator will do is look at a range of different outcomes of courses. So what kind of jobs are students going on to? Uh, do they complete the course? How much do they earn in later life? On that basis, are we able to figure out, well, hang on, that course has, actually isn't delivering value for money? Well, with that information, they already do that. It's letting people down and we should not put students on it. And then he said, with that information, students can make more informed choices. Well, that's exactly what happens already. So they've announced this thing about the cap. It doesn't sound... But it's uh, either not a nonsense or, you know, it's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Take your pick, options. Rishi Suna. Libby, is this nonsense or stupid? Oh, probably both, really. I mean, <laughs> Rachel said it all and explained it absolutely brilliantly. The other half of what he said was that he wanted to encourage uh, more good apprenticeships. Now, I'm incredibly in favour of that because I do think that a lot of young people do actually waste a great deal of their money and their future indebtedness and a lot of their time on courses which, you know, just because everyone thinks that they should go to uni, they should go to university. Um, I have known three young people, all perfectly bright, and a couple of them very, very sort of upper middle class who simply stepped into the apprenticeship routes. One's a banker and uh, one is a boat builder, you know, and, and somebody else has gone in, into a, a weird sort of marketing apprenticeship. And it's lovely. They've got no debts and they're moving on and they've educated themselves. They read widely. They're interesting people. You know, it's not essential. But I do think that the, the business of, of, of this artificial pretending to cap things and not cap them and so on is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, the tragedy is the young people who do try something, find they can't afford it, just can't carry on. They drop out. The dropout tragedy is awful. People end up with a great deal of debt and absolutely nothing at the end of it. There's a lot to be thought about in the education, 18-plus education, yeah. uh, but I do not get an impression that uh, the government is currently thinking about it with any so any rigour. Um, reading The Telegraph, not, not a sentence I use very often, obviously, but um, in the piece that which is actually written in The Telegraph, he says, we'll limit the number of students than a university can recruit to a course if it's not delivering good outcomes. Which and seems to be not do. what he's, he's just been saying just morning. explained, yeah. 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 But the, I, th I totally agree with Libby and I, I think, again, that's an example where students, young people are smart and they're working out themselves that often apprenticeships are better value and a better bet than a degree that isn't, you know, useful. Um, you know, some of these apprenticeships, like the one at, that James Dyson runs for engineering or PwC or some of these, Google, some of these companies have really fantastic apprenticeships and they're more oversubscribed than Oxbridge courses, you know, so there is a huge demand. Um, so in that sense, the, the students are working it out. They're really not stupid. Um, and actually, as someone who didn't go to university, um, I have sympathy for the idea of you should look at alternatives. But is there also, um, Libby, there is a point that some people, it, should the process of going to university, given that students are basically, you know, in lots of cases, particularly humanities ones, paying for the entire course themselves to the loans they take out, if you want to go and do something just because you think it's interesting and it might broaden your horizons and you'll move away from home and all of that, in and of itself... Is that a good enough reason to go and do a course, regardless of whether or not Rishi Sunak thinks it leads to enough of an uptick in your employment prospects? Well, see if 
you reckon you can afford it or, or your family can afford it? I, what I don't like is people feeling that they ought to get a degree, just any degree, a degree, because um, the graduate, you know, the, 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 the graduate premium in employment has absolutely vanished, you know, some years ago. It's out of date that they feel they should do that. And then they end up in these massive debts. Um, you know, there should be a much wider range of options which are sort of widely acceptable. Um, but the worrying thing is that is that people, families on lower incomes and who are more anxious about their position and who, who are more fragile, you know, are likely to sort of back off the whole thing and we will lose a lot of incredibly talented people because they're just not being given that sort of way in to more education. Um, and the, a lot, you know, further education, colleges, universities, everybody, we should be trawling around like some of the big American um, universities do, trying to find the best, never mind how much money they've got, never mind what class or colour or type they are. You know, let's just, just get the best people. We have we have a falling population. You know, we do actually need, we need these people. Yeah. Well, we'll see, because it, it feels like we could be right in the middle of this policy slightly unravelling. Mm. There does seem to be a, a distinct gap between what's in the papers this morning and what Rishi Sinak's been saying uh, uh, on the visit. Uh, let's move on, because it's not like uh, policy-wise everything is fine over in uh, Team Labour. Uh, uh, Keir Starmer confirming that a Labour government would keep the Conservatives' controversial two-child benefit cap, uh, which means you're going to claim benefits of your first two children. Despite, well, for years... Members of his own shadow uh, cabinet and others uh, publicly criticising the policy, uh, including, uh, well, this is what Keir Starmer had to say yesterday. He was speaking to the BBC's Laura Coonsberg, uh, said he was not changing the policy and he would keep it even if Labour win the next election. If you have more than two children at the moment, you don't get benefits. Would that change under a Labour government? We're not changing that policy. You're not changing the two benefits. Well, the awful lot of people have gone on the record previously to criticise it. This was uh, the Shadow Cabinet Minister, Jonathan Reynolds, in the Commons uh, in 2020. The opposition asked for five urgent measures to stop families falling into significant hardship. The sharing of the £20 increase to universal credit across legacy benefits. Scrapping the savings threshold so savers weren't punished. Ending the punitive two-child limit and the benefit cap so that people could receive what the government has already announced. And there were others, uh, Rachel, I think, um, John, Athworth, John Athworth, who's the shadow working pensioner, he's called it heinous, this policy. Yeah, Angela Rayner, obscene and inhumane. Yeah. So it's definitely, a, this is a very controversial decision by Starmer. And it's not, in the grand scheme of things, a huge amount of money, I think, you know, and I think when it was introduced, because it isn't about money, it's about fairness and it's about, uh, you know, being tough on benefits and George Osborne saying you couldn't, in the in the world of politics, you couldn't be too cut, tough on benefits. Just keep on cutting, cutting, mm. cutting. I think it would cost one point three billion pounds yeah. to uh, get rid of this policy, uh, and I think this really is totemic of the fact that Starmer and Rachel Reeves are now absolutely obsessed by keeping the costs down and balancing the books and showing that they're economically competent at almost at the cost of anything else so it's about priorities and choices and they are choosing that sort of fiscal credibility um reputation almost above compassion because actually the evidence shows that this policy drives child poverty 
uh, almost more than anything else. Uh, so you would expect Labour to have um, been in favour of getting rid of it. Uh, so, but for Starmer, the bigger problem is spending anything yeah, yeah. is impossible because he's now committed to matching the Conservative spending limits. Call me cynical, uh, Libby. I do wonder whether Labour yet might go into the election promising to, to, to cut this. I, I, to be honest, I mean, uh, my view on it, it would be much quicker if I just rang, sang you a verse of the red flag, really. Uh, <laughs> you know, we have all over the front of the Times today is the fact of people's extreme difficulty, you know, families' extreme difficulty in paying their just basic costs to live with a roof over their heads. And uh, we are, as I've, I've said, you know, we, we do actually need more children. You know, we, we need children. We need healthy, well brought up, well fed, educated children. And um, this, you know, this two child thing was was mean minded. And I mean, if you consider that most people, you know, people have a choice now as to how many children they have. Um, most people are absolutely terrified even to go beyond one because of the cost of childcare, because of because of the problems of education, because of, uh, of the general cost of living. I, I, I think I, I really wish Labour would stand up and stand for something. At the moment, there's just no water at all between the two parties. Uh, why would anybody bother? What do you think, Rachel? I think it's not true to say there's no water between the two parties. But I think what this shows is it's it's all about the economy now for Labour and Starmer. And it's all about proving that he can be trusted to balance the books uh, and add up. And I think there's a danger that that sort of single-minded obsession uh, reduces the scope for Labour to offer a kind of yeah. real alternative. And, and things do cost money. So, you know, and there are choices in politics, whether that's about how much you tax and how much you spend. But I suppose, is it entirely down to the economic situation or is it also sort of the nature of Keir Starmer as a, as a politician? You know, he, his whole thing is not very... I mean, basically, he's going to the election saying, we'll do much the same as the Tories, we'll do it slightly better. Uh, which may well get him over the line, but the the sense of disappointment afterwards, if it's much the same, and because they won't be able to competently do all the things that they say they will, because that's just the nature of being in government. And also, the I think there's also, when it comes to welfare, they want to make clear that they're also tough. You know, they're not sort of splashing about the cash for benefit claimants in a sort of, you know, it's a, another way of d dividing line with the Corbyn years, if you like. Uh, but this... This particular policy is is um, sort of particularly problematic and has been highlighted by all the experts as not really having the effect it's supposed to. Yeah, well, we'll see how that uh, progresses. Well, we'll, we'll, maybe that policy won't survive till the end of the week. Either. <laughs> um, uh, Libby, let's talk about vapes. I had someone in the studio a couple of weeks ago who took apart a disposable vape uh, with a very strong warning, do not try this at home. Because uh, I didn't know that it turned out that quite a lot of what's in the disposable, they are reusable. They've got rechargeable batteries and anyway. Uh, but you've written uh, in the, your column today uh, after the local government association called for disposable vapes to be immediately banned on both environmental and health grounds and you're all for it. Absolutely. I mean, it, it astonishes me that, that we've allowed this extraordinary plague to grow. I mean, they are that they are the most the, a dangerous and absurd and wasteful uh, source of litter. Apart from anything else, I love the calculation that so many uh, of the ones thrown away within a year, you can make about sort of two hundred car batteries out of the um, lithium in them. Uh, they are condemned by the World Health Organization 
as not being entirely safe. Um, there's a, a massive, half of Europe is thinking of banning them entirely, which will mean a massive flood of more of the cheap ones, including some of the kind of bootleg ones, which are full of disgusting chemicals. Um, and, you know, they are being marketed quite deliberately to children. Why else do you have something in bright crayon flavours, you know, yeah, and yeah. called gummy bear flavour and unicorn milk and so on? You know, they are vaping is supposed to be to save adults who cannot in any other way, for some reason, wean themselves off tobacco, cigarettes. Um, but instead, we have just got this absolute plague that the schools are full of them, you know, the, the gutters are full of them, the bus shelters are full of thrown away ones. It's appalling. For it. There's every reason to ban them. And it should happen now. And the local government association, presumably because it notices things far more than the government ministers do from their government cars, um, you know, they, they say that this happens to, happens to happen now and they're bang right. I totally agree yeah. with Libby. Um, so there is a case for having uh, vapes for people who are really trying to give up cigarettes uh, as a replacement. Um, but those don't need to be these disposable vapes. Um, but what isn't right is what's happening is children are becoming addicted to nicotine through vaping. Yep. So people who've yeah. never smoked a cigarette in their lives are now being attracted to these vapes. And you should, and as Libby says, they're deliberately, cynically marketed to children. At the very least, they should be sort of plain packaging, health warnings, yeah. and they should be, there's no reason why they need to have these disposable ones. If you, if there's something for a medical reason for somebody yeah, to stop smoking, smoking, having the thing have, and then doesn't it doesn't have to yeah, be yeah. The, the, the disposable ones. Oh, even the sound of them is quite annoying, isn't it? So, where do you stand on seagulls? Don't say on their neck. Uh, no, they are they're a menace, obviously. Uh, but uh, chips of the British seas are often ruined by seagulls. Uh, stealing your chips, ice creams, wet wipes, whatever, basically whatever it is you're holding. But, according to experts, instead of deterring gulls with poison spikes and traps, we need to learn to live with them. Uh, Viola Ross-Smith is from the British Trust for Ornithology. And joins me now. Hi, Viola. Good morning. Um, go on then. So we've got uh, Rachel Vester and Libby Purvis both still here. Sell seagulls to us. Do it. Should we be nicer about them? I think we should. I mean, we're in a biodiversity crisis, number one. These birds look like they're big and tough and indestructible, but that's not the case. Um, the two species we're mainly talking about bothering people are the herring gull and the lesser blackback gull. They're both birds of conservation concern. The herring gull is on the UK red list because of declines in recent decades. So if big, tough, adaptable birds like gulls are struggling to live alongside humans, what hope for our more fragile species? We need to somehow learn to accommodate all species, and maybe that includes gulls. What do you think, Rachel? Are you, a, are you a fan of seagulls? No, I think they're absolutely terrifying. I live in Hackney in East London and we've been invaded by seagulls by the there. Sea. Yeah. yeah. So you can hear them squawking away. Um, they're the new foxes kind of nicking everything from your bins. Um, and I I just think they're a menace. I'm really sorry to the um, ornithologists. <laughs> <laughs> Libby? Hi, I'm addressing you from a car whose paintwork is almost entirely seagull crap. <laughs> um, uh, on a quite permanent basis, and I, I am proud of this. And, and I go sailing, I've just been sailing for three weeks, and every seabird is to be valued and loved. They soar, they're beautiful. I mean, I know, you know, everybody gets very annoyed by them, and boat people get annoyed by them too. I remember a lighthouse bloke once describing them as basically, um, you know, it's, it's sort of two holes with an 
acid bath in between, you know, because the, the, the stuff which comes out of them is pretty grim, uh, as Rachel well knows. But no, they're wonderful. They're birds. Let birds fly, you know. Let, 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 uh, the, the, think of them as very small, messy angels, maybe. <laughs> Nicking your chips. That's quite a PR, PR campaign to try to do that. Look, well, if, you can't defend, if you can't defend your chips against a seagull, come on. Well, I remember, but, but, yeah, what, what should we do about, um, uh, is, are there ways to sort of, uh, for us to rub along with seagulls? I remember once sitting on the beach in Brighton having my fish and chips with Tim Shipman from the Sunday Times and a seagull came down and took my fish off. I, Tim had to share his fish. What can we do so that we can, can live in harmony with the, with the gulls? There are various things. So one thing we need to remember is that not all gulls are going to be nicking your food. Individual gulls have got individual dietary preferences, just like we do. So only some of them will be nicking food. Lots of them will be, you know, innocently foraging on estuaries, pulling up into tidal worms and things that we wouldn't be interested in eating at all. Um, so on that note, we need to make sure there is enough food in the natural habitat for these birds to eat. So there needs to be enough fish in the sea. There needs to be enough intertidal invertebrates so we don't need pollution and killing all our invertebrates and that kind of thing. Gulls have adapted to our environments. So if we don't leave litter hanging around, lying yeah. around, if we don't feed the birds, they're not going to habituate to taking food from us. But also, they know who's aware of them, who's not. Um, so if you're clocking the birds and if you're making sure that they know that you know you're making eye contact, that kind of thing, they're not going to steal your food. They'll go on to someone who's paying oh. attention. So some, it's worth being aware of your environment. Some top tips. <laughs> Stare, Stare strong down eye contact. I'm not coming under any yeah. of my face. Libby Purvis and Ray Sylvester there. And of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox. Up next, we take a look at tax. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Is Rishi Sunak taking policy advice from Dick and Dom? Probably scrapping inheritance tax. It's always, it's always been a bone of contention, and I, I really feel that. You know, you've worked all your life. You've been a slave to it all. And that when you've gone... Do you know what? The money that you've got in your bank account, just let them just give it to their kids or to charity or to invest it in the local cat's home. They're gone now. Leave it alone. Leave their money alone. So I'll get rid of inheritance tax. Presumably so they can pass on the bungalow to the next generation. Well, uh, that was Dick and Dom in the bungalow uh, telling me what they were doing. They ruled the world uh, a couple of years ago. Well, David Lloyd George once said that death is the most convenient time to tax rich people. 
But is there a policy change coming? Uh, speculation in the Times over the weekend, the government is thinking about abolishing inheritance tax uh, as part of a big pledge at the general election. So uh, we thought we would take a look at the politics of tax cuts and specifically that of uh, inheritance tax. New YouGov poll for the Times shows that people seem to be overestimating the likelihood that they will even have to pay it. Rules and allowances mean that married couples can leave their children up to a million pounds before inheritance tax even kicks in. So, uh, what taxes would you like to see cut? How many people actually think they're going to be uh, affected by inheritance tax? And it's such a big, potent political uh, issue, this, that... Announcing increases in the amount you could pass on before paying an inheritance tax is credited with the Tories stopping uh, Gordon Brown calling a snap election uh, back in 2007. Well, Tanya Abraham is from YouGov to take us through the numbers on this. Uh, Tanya, so the Tories looking at doing something on inheritance tax, is this the right way to go? Well, at YouGov, we had asked the public what type of tax cuts they would like to see. And whilst um, around 10% of the public said that they would most like to see the inheritance tax being abolished, other types of tax cuts, such as um, VAT tax cuts, income tax cuts, are more popular um, than the inheritance tax cuts. So around a quarter of the population would prefer to see tax cuts to VAT and uh, income. And um, you asked them about the, uh, the the extent to which they think that they might have to pay inheritance tax. And in reality, it's about 3.6, of UK deaths result in paying inheritance tax. But how many people think they might be affected? Well, we also asked this question and around a third think that um, their assets will warrant this type of tax and a third think they'll get inheritance in the future, which will warrant this kind of tax. Um, when it comes to those who are expecting some kind of inheritance in the future, 15% think they will receive an inheritance large enough to uh, warrant this type of tax. So there is some kind of disconnect or overestimation of uh, whether the people or whether the public think that they will, you know, fall into that category compared to those who actually do. So there is, you know, perhaps a lack of um, awareness or knowledge of what it means. And this is something that I think the parties will want to clarify um, to see if this will attract enough votes. So I suppose from a sort of political, we'll talk about the economics a bit later, but from a political perspective, you could say, well, look, it doesn't actually affect that many people. Why would you go down that road? But if lots of people think they could be affected by it, if a third of people think, oh, you know, I might um, end up being hit by inheritance tax, regardless of whether or not that's actually realistic, it might be a potent political uh, battleground for the Conservatives. Yes, it's. I think by many people it's seen as quite a politically canny move because they're trying to tap into um, the group of people who think they might be affected but actually aren't affected. So it's possibly a way to, you know, gather more support than is actually going to affect uh, the people that it will do. And um, if people are overestimating the likelihood of this actually happening, you know, maybe it's something that, that could be... Um, you know, effective or, or, you know, supported by these people. But I think it is important to kind of just um, reflect or point again to the other types of tax cuts that were considered more kind of um, important. And also things like VAT and income tax cuts, uh, the types of taxes that people think would impact them more on a daily basis, on a personal basis, than something like the inheritance tax cut. Because I suppose the the, the 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 cost of living crisis presents a more pressing 
uh, um, need to basically allow people to keep more of the, the money that they, they have. Everyone's paying VAT on the goods and services they earn, uh, you know, the, the paying the levels of income tax. You know, that's money going out of your pay packet each month. Whereas, you know, even, you know the best part of the world, even if you are going to be affected by inheritance tax, that's, that's probably, you know, further down the road. Ultimately, it's paying tax on on money that you're inheriting. So, it, 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 so at a at a time of uh, of uh, cost of living crisis, you can see why cutting basic rate of income tax, cutting uh, VAT, has more immediate support. Yeah, definitely. And as YouGov polling has been showing, things like the economy is still kind of top of people's priority list in terms of what is important to them at the moment. And with the cost of living, with increasing prices of, you know, utility bills, household items and so on, really those uh, areas where people can save any money will be important now. And I think what has been um, touted as a potential inheritance tax cut or abolishment is will be in the future rather than now. But perhaps the idea of um, a future inheritance tax cut is something that um, the parties will want to say, you know, we will address this in the future. You can see that we're trying to address this now. But I think for now, people will want to see more of a direct impact on their on their spending and, and the bills that they have to pay. It's really interesting that. Thanks, Tanya. Tanya Abraham there. Uh, YouGov Pulsar taking us through that polling for uh, the Times. Actually, one of the things that really struck me was that the level of support for one tax cut or another is pretty uniform right across age groups, politics, uh, relief and remain were pretty similar. Uh, you know, it was, it was quite striking. But the biggest difference, I think, was that twenty nine percent of the over sixty fives want uh, a cut in VAT compared to eighteen uh, percent of eighteen to twenty four year olds, um, uh, where support for reducing the basic rate of income tax was higher amongst younger people than older people. But then, obviously, I suppose the older people aren't paying it. So, um, you know, if you are retired, then you're uh, you're not paying it in the same way. But let's focus on in, uh, inheritance tax now because it, it was first introduced back back in March nineteen eighty six. It might now only affect a small number of Brits, but it still acts as this really potent uh, force in politics. I want to go all the way back to 2007. That summer, Gordon Brown had replaced uh, Tony Blair as Prime Minister. He'd had a good summer. Uh, he was seen as being a, a contrast to his predecessor. He dealt with a foot-mouth outbreak and a terror attack and and uh, the, just the first murmurings of the uh, Northern Rock crisis as well. And it looked like he was about to call a snap general election. Then in October that year, David Cameron addressed the Conservative Party conference, setting out his party's big vision. It included a promise to take most people out of the inheritance tax, tax bracket, lifting it up that million pounds uh, mark. Uh, and uh, after it was revealed that Gordon Brown wanted to push David Cameron to call an early election, uh, the Tory leader turned the tables. Let's take a listen to this. So, Mr Brown, what's it going to be? Why don't you go ahead and call that election? Let the people pass judgment on 10 years of broken promises. Let people decide who's really making the arguments about the future of our country. Let people decide who can make the changes that we need in our country. Call that election. We will fight. Britain will win. Well, after that successful Conservative Party conference, with that big inheritance tax pledge, Gordon Brown bottled it. He went on the Andrew Marr show, denied he'd ever considered such a thing despite weeks of behind-the-scenes Labour Party preparations. I believe the public, their priority was not an election, but that we got on with the job. But having made the decision, I made it for the reasons I'm saying. 
I want a chance to show the country that we have a vision for the future of this country. And yes, I could have a mandate or want a mandate for competence, but I want a mandate to show the vision of the country that I have is being implemented in practice. Well, was he telling the truth? Uh, let's bring in uh, Labour peer Stuart Wood, who was at that point a senior advisor to Gordon Brown. Hi, Stuart. Hello, uh, and we've also got uh, the uh, Philip Webster, who was the political editor uh, for The Times at the time. Hi, Phil. Hi there. Um, Stuart, let's, uh, let's um, deal with the first question first. Uh, was he being economic with the truth about the fact that actually Labour were quite a long way down the road in terms of preparing for a general election. There, there was definitely studies going on. There were people sent out to do focus groups and to talk to constituencies, um, in local Labour Party. Yeah, there was definitely, definitely trawling going on for the idea of it. Um, ultimately, inheritance tax was only one of the factors that led to him deciding not to do it. So, as you put it so eloquently, bottled it. Um, <laughs> uh, he, I th ultimately, I think that what he, he came to the conclusion that an unnecessary election in which you probably came back with a smaller majority was not justifiable and would be considered a sort of defeat even if you won. So I think that was the, ultimately the reason. But inheritance tax was part of that sort of potent mixture of things yeah. going on. And what it was, it was David Cameron basically, who at that point, I remember there were editorials around that in the late summer saying David Cameron may go as leader of the Conservative Party. Yeah. He turned the tables very effectively that speech, and I think it changed the dynamic of the relationship between the leader of the opposition and the Prime Minister. There's both the detail of the policy, but also the, the, just the audacity exactly. of it. Exactly. And the ability to change the weather. Um, Phil, take us back to that, that time. I I think it was the first, I think that might have been, I mean, no, maybe it was the second sort of Tory party conference. I, mean, I, I remember thinking, of a, a party conference is always this exciting. I now know through bitter experience, not. <laughs> um, but it was a huge moment. So it, it basically went from saying you had to pay uh, inheritance tax on, uh, on anything over £300,000 to anything over a million with the, the couple's allowance. Nine million families uh, will be taken out of inheritance tax, George Osborne said. Um, and it was a sort of electric moment, wasn't it? It was, it was a huge moment because Labour had allowed... The, the Labour conference, as we know, comes before the Tory conference. And throughout the Labour conference that year, uh, they'd allowed speculation to rise that there would be... that Gordon Brown would be calling a general election. Uh, his mistake was not to call it in his speech uh, at the conference because then the Tory conference would have been curtailed and nobody would really have been taking much notice of the Tory conference. The Tory conference went ahead. George, George Osborne gets up on the Monday and announces this new policy. And it wasn't just a case of um, um, getting to the middle classes, if you like, the idea that they might just get this wonderful tax cut. It enthused the Tory party at the time. And they went from a, a position of thinking, my God, Gordon Brown's having this fabulous start and suddenly they were enthused and things began to change. And uh, uh, the Times ran a poll at the end of that week showing that the Labour lead had narrowed. Part of that was because of the Osborne announcement on uh, inheritance tax. Part of it was because the Tories had just had a good conference. They were, they were G'd up by, uh, by having something to talk about. And I, I'm not surprised that... Uh, today's Conservative government is trying something similar. They've put it out there. They put it out there on Saturday. Um, and thousands of people are talking about it. If yeah. you look at the comments on the 
Times story uh, on on the website, there are thousands of comments. Not not all supporting it by any means. A lot of people <laughs> saying this is a lot of people saying this is desperate stakes, but it's got the country talking again. And actually, after the story broke of the Times on Saturday, I tweeted that just this is just what the Tories need a seven billion pound tax cut for millionaires. <laughs> That's going to and it's it's a different. You can't just do the same trick right. again. Well, although it is, it does feel like getting out the old greatest hits again, yeah. you know. It, it, and it does, I think Phil's right, there is a kind of magic potion quality to inheritance tax within the Tory base. So I think this is partly targeted at that, partly trying to look interesting, partly trying to revive some sense of the Tory glories of the past. It's a very strange, you've, you've always been discussing inheritance tax for a while, it's a very strange tax in that... It's the power of th- of promising to cut it relies on lots of people who think they're going to be caught by it, who aren't going to be caught by it, yeah. believing that they'll be beneficiaries of this. Yeah. And that's a very strange thing for a tax to have. Um, as you say, it's the top 6%, the most, the wealthiest, not just the rich, it's the very rich and the super rich who pay uh, inheritance tax. It won't touch the sides for 94% of the population. Yeah. And yet it has for a lot of people, particularly Tories, but not just Tory loyalists and Tory members, it has this quality of symbolising something about aspiration. And there's a very natural feeling, right, about respecting people when they pass on, their wishes being respected fully, all that kind of thing. But the reason that when George Osborne did it, it had resonance is because only millionaires would pay it because he was raising the threshold of money. Once you get beyond that, yeah. it's a harder sell, arguably. And that, But then I suppose a lot of it comes down to Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves' ability to land the argument, you don't pay this. You're not, you know, That's this right. is only for the for the very wealthy. And it was interesting back in 2007 when, when the Tories took people by surprise at that announcement. Gordon was quite frustrated because he had thought about doing something about inheritance tax back at the Treasury. I think he was annoyed at himself for not having done it. And then we rushed in two days some sort of pretty feeble attempt to have our own version of an inheritance tax reform. Mm. Uh, and there are lots of things about inheritance tax that do need reforming. For example, if you are really, really, really wealthy, you can avoid it much more if, you're, yeah. if your money's not in just the house. Yeah. A lot of people, it, it, you know, of, of the few people who pay, it, are people at the lower end, as it were, of the very rich who, who will be trapped by inheritance tax or caught by it will only have the family house and maybe a few other bits of money. And you can't dodge paying tax on houses in a way you can yeah, if yeah. you've got lots of stocks and shares and you can put it in a pension that can be avoided. Yeah. So there's lots of unfairnesses about inheritance tax, which you, which a Labour government could have things to say about, a Labour wanting to be in government yeah. could have things to say about. And I suspect, I hope that's where they'll end up if they get dragged into discussing it. They may just ignore it. They may just think, right, let's talk about what we want to talk about. Yeah. Um, uh, what do you think, Phil? Do you think ultimately they will go into the election promising this? I have my doubts. I, I think there was a time when this, this would have worked, uh, but because of what you've already been seeing this morning with the, the YouGov poll, people putting a higher priority on income tax cuts or VAT cuts, if there is money for tax cuts, it seems that the public would rather it went elsewhere. The only thing is, of course, it's much cheaper to abolish inheritance tax. That cost about $7 billion, and it's three times that that amount if you want to cut income tax by 2p. So I think they'll let it run for a bit. I think they'll try and make the Labour Party uncomfortable and Labour Party will have to be ready with the argument that you suggested. They've got to show people that uh, they are not affected by inheritance tax. And if you live in the South East, you know, house prices should make people think, well, God, this is worth a million. I I may have to pay inheritance tax. So there is some arguing to do out there before this one is put to bed. Just finally, Stuart, um, on a connected issue, when the Labour Party is working out what it should spend money on, should a Labour government uh, scrap the two-child cap on benefits? I mean, I personally would like to see it 
scrap. I mean, it, it is key to um, poverty for, for lots of people, the worst kind of poverty. It's definitely connected to it, as Labour politicians have been saying for the last year and a half. I also understand that they want to make the priority, the fact that they are fiscally responsible and they're prepared to take some pain now. And if after two years they get a bit of headroom to be able to do things like that, they'll probably yeah. want to do it. So it's a tough choice they're making now. Personally, I'd love to see, I'm sure most Labour members, in fact, probably most people would like to see that reformed. So the, the, the judgment about whether there's fiscal headroom is one they've got to make now, I guess. Talking tax uh, today. Uh, after the Times reported at the weekend, the Conservatives were looking at scrapping inheritance tax. A YouGov poll uh, reveals that actually 24% would like to see VAT cut. 22% say reduce the basic rate of income tax. Uh, 16% say increase the amount of money people can earn before they pay income tax. 11, 11% say reduce tax on petrol and diesel. 10% say abolish inheritance tax. Uh, and 2% say cut corporation tax on businesses. Well, let's now speak to uh, the Conservative MP, former Cabinet Minister, uh, John Redwood joins me. Hi, John. Good morning. Um, you've been campaigning for lower taxes for some time. If you were, if you governed, polled you, which was top of your list of taxes you'd like to see cut? Well, I'm proposing that the Conservative government gets on with a series of tax cuts now because I think we need them to promote growth and cut inflation. So my priorities are to get rid of the 2017 and 2021 uh, tax attacks on the self-employed. We've lost a lot of self-employed. I think we need more self-employed back. Uh, I would then raise the VAT threshold for small business. I think 85,000 is far too low and there are literally lots of small businesses now. Uh, that won't take on extra work because they don't want to go through the threshold. And then I would take off or reduce one of the energy taxes because I think we need to have a more direct impact on the inflation rate. That will then, of course, help on public spending because if you get the inflation rate down, the inflationary costs of benefits and government start to reduce rather than increasing. How do you pay for all of that, though? Because we saw what happened last year when uh, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng laid out lots of tax cuts, uh, unfunded, and that contributed to the idea that uh, their sums didn't add up and she was out of the door in, within a couple of weeks. Well, I think the main reason um, that Truss and Kwarteng got into trouble was the Bank of England at the same time put up interest rates and announced a very big bond-selling programme, which obviously destabilised the fixed-income market and that led to more pressure on mortgage rates. And at the same time, of course, um, Trust and Kwarteng did twice as much by way of increasing public spending uh, as they did by reducing taxation. Uh, and the overall package was clearly too expensive for too much additional borrowing. Um, these cuts I'm proposing are rather more modest in scale on Treasury arithmetic. I think um, the, the two business cuts could actually promote more additional revenue from other taxes because it would promote more growth. Uh, but I would also cover it off with uh, modest reductions in, in public spending or rephasing of public spending. I think, for example, I would drop the uh, free smart meters for a year or two. That's a billion a year. Um, I would rephase the carbon capture and storage 20 billion. I think there are a number of ways that you could um, reduce some of the pressures on public spending without obviously taking any money away from health or schools. And on the on the specific of the, in, the inheritance tax, it, the live conversation clearly happening in Downing Street, it would cost about £7 billion. It would benefit the top 4, 3, 4% uh, of, uh, of people in their passing on their estates. Is that a good uh, move, either economically or politically, do you think, for the Conservatives right now? 
Well, I don't think anybody's suggesting it before the general election, and I certainly wouldn't recommend doing it before the general election, given the fiscal issues and the cost of living squeeze, which is more intense on people on lower incomes. <clears throat> That's why I'm looking for measures which would promote more capacity, more growth and more taxable capacity um, as an offset. I think it's a useful debate on inheritance tax to have for the manifesto. I and others who would wish to contribute to that debate haven't put our submissions in yet. We assume there's a year or so to, to go to discuss what will actually be in the manifesto. I heard your earlier discussion. There are two very big differences between now and the George Osborne announcement. Uh, the first is that um, when George Osborne announced changes, many more people paid inheritance yeah. tax at much lower levels of inheritance. So that's one of the reasons it was more popular. And the second big difference is, of course, conservatives were in opposition and been in opposition for more than a decade. So nobody could turn around and say, well, why haven't you already done this? <laughs> um, which is much more difficult when you're in government if you want to do something dramatic like getting rid of a, a whole tax. So um, I won't prejudge what finally I and others might be putting to the government in the run to the manifesto, but certainly I can think of other taxes that I think are more urgent <coughs> for economic growth and lowering inflation and taxes that will have an impact on a wider range of people than the rather narrow group now who are caught by the inheritance Thanks. You've touched on what does seem to be a, a, a problem with a party which has been in government for a long time. You know, Gordon Brown definitely faced it in uh, 2010. The Conservatives seem to be doing it now. You've, you've been around uh, long enough, um, John. You were head of policy in uh, number 10. Uh, you were there in the, in the 80s. You were there then for the dying days of the John Major government. Is there just something inevitable about the fact that you've been in government for a long time? If you haven't come up with any bright ideas to solve the problems the country faces by now, you're probably not going to. Is there a sense of inevitability now about the Conservatives losing the next election? No, I don't think it's inevitable. We've got another year and a half to go if we go the full term. And what I'm suggesting to the government to improve our chances of winning is to be much more energetic now at delivering the, the five promises I think the Prime Minister's five promises are great. The, the three economic ones are crucial, more growth, less inflation, less borrowing. They all fit together. You need a growth strategy to do that. And I think then if you go to the country, having demonstrated over the next 18 months that you had uh, got a long way to achieving those crucial economic objectives, and if you then have a really exciting package to say, and what's more, give us a majority again, and this is what you'll get next time, then I think uh, that greatly increases your chances of winning. And yeah. the tragedy for this Conservative government, series of Conservative governments since 2019, uh, is we were elected with a great majority, there's a lot of public trust, but then it was blown sideways by COVID and lockdown and the huge amount of spending and borrowing that entailed. Uh, and we've got to get over that as quickly as possible and show we're back on normal Conservative ways of running the economy well and making people better off. They've taken too big a hit. It's mainly related to COVID and mm -hmm. to the Bank of England greatly inflating the money supply. Uh, <clears throat> we now need to show we can get over that and offer a good course for the future. So, John Redwood, really good to meet you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, John, with uh, Conservative MP, former cabinet minister, former uh, director of policy uh, in Margaret Thatcher's uh, Downing Street as well. Uh, do let us know what you think about it. We've had an awful lot of messages actually about uh, inherited tax. Um, uh, some saying it's a good idea, some saying it's a bad idea. Uh, and, uh, you know, lots of folks on the southeast. But the point is, yes, 3.6% of, uh, of deaths actually end up uh, being liable to pay for it. 
So it's a good use of money. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode. Let me know what taxes you'd like to cut. You can email me, matt at times.radio. Catch me weekdays from 10. But for now, for me, Matt Trolley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.